Hi, this is Billy Van Zant. You may remember me as the Randorite ensign in Star Trek The Motion Picture, and you are listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. One of the things that I enjoy learning about on this show is what happens to each week's guest after their time on Star Trek. And in the case of many character actors we've spoken to, it's not always more performing. We've spoken with Lysia Naff, who went into journalism, Caitlin Hopkins, who went into teaching and directing college and high school students, Juliana Donald, who went into jewelry, and others who left Hollywood just to pursue completely new and different interests. In the case of this week's guest, acting was the original plan, but their other talents took over and led them down a very different career path. Today, we're speaking with Billy Van Zant, who you may remember from Star Trek The Motion Picture as the Randorite seen on the bridge and in some other scenes through the first act of the film. If you don't know who I'm talking about, look up that alien and yeah, you'll have a hard time not seeing him again, that's for sure. Billy's done plenty of work on screen, but the bulk of his career has in fact been behind the scenes. As a writer and producer for some pretty well-known TV shows, and a playwright in the world of theater. Alongside his writing partner, Jane Milmore, the pair has written and produced shows with Richard Lewis, Jamie Lee Curtis, Don Rickles, Bob Newhart, Martin Lawrence, The Wayans Brothers, D.L. Hughley, Brooke Shields, and John Goodman, just to name a few. Billy and Jane were also nominated for an Emmy for their CBS special, I Love Lucy, the very first show, which was the first time the original unaired pilot for I Love Lucy was ever shown on TV. Aside from Star Trek, you've seen Billy on screen in Jaws 2, Taps, Life with Lucy, and several of the shows he wrote or produced. Billy offers a unique perspective into the entertainment industry thanks to his multi-talented abilities, and offers us a glimpse of his side of the world, along with a peek at the original Star Trek movie, which I believe doesn't get talked about as much as it should. And as a side note, the day that this episode is being released marks the one-year memorial since Jane Milmore passed away after a brave battle against pancreatic cancer. So I'd like to dedicate this episode in her memory and honor her work just as much as we're honoring Billy's contributions today. So stay tuned, we've got a lot to talk about today. We're discussing Billy's new autobiography, we're discussing his time on Star Trek, we're discussing his run-ins with a lot of famous celebrities, and especially Lucille Ball. So this is going to be a good one, folks. But before we jump into today's interview, I want to ask you if you're following us yet on social media. If you're not, you can check out Trek Untold on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we update there constantly. It's the best way to find out who this week's guest is going to be in advance, and also potentially ask them any questions when we offer that option. So that's Trek Untold, one word, no spaces, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to take a look at some of the merchandise we have there, which includes t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and all sorts of other things. We'll be releasing new designs constantly, so make sure to keep an eye there if you'd like to support this show and show off to your friends how much you like it. You can also directly support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold to become a Patreon. But most important of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or any other audio forms, make sure to leave a review and a rating and drop some stars if you can. And if you're watching the YouTube version, please don't forget to subscribe to Nerd News Today, the channel that you're watching this on, and give the video a thumbs up. And of course, while you're at it, feel free to comment there and let me know what you think of this week's guest. Subscribing, leaving ratings, leaving comments are all some of the most important things you can do to help this podcast continue to grow and ensure that more people find out about this show. 
And if you're already following us or supporting us on Patreon or have bought some merch, a big, big thank you for doing that or offering your support in whatever way that you can. Thank you for the help. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and I'm very grateful that you've chosen to listen to this one today. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D printed Star Trek inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up today's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold, and we're now joined by actor, writer, producer, one-time Star Trek alien, and Lucille Ball expert, Mr. Billy Van Zant. Billy, how are you today? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. So, Billy, you've got a book that just came out fairly recently, uh, which is uh, your autobiography called Get in the Car, Jane. And we're going to spend a little bit of time later talking about some stories in that book throughout this interview. Uh, but first, I'd like to ask you our signature leading question on Trek Untold. And that is, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? My earliest memory of Star Trek is fighting with my brother over the TV set. We went back and forth between Star Trek and Lucy. They were on at the same time in New York. So uh, we would alternate weeks. And if, God forbid, somebody, you know, got in the way, we'd, we'd fight. We'd just fight a lot. <laughs> so having read your book, I know that you grew up in New Jersey. But can you tell us a little bit more about exactly uh, where you were from, who your parents were, and what little Billy wanted to be when he grew up? Okay. I am from uh, Middletown, New Jersey. Um, I grew up uh, in a, uh, you know, middle-class family, uh, typical, uh, you know, split-level houses, a track thing. And um, my father was a, an ex-Marine who uh, was an engineer. My mother, uh, was, she, she ran an off, a doctor's office. And uh, we had no, nobody in show business in our family at all. Somehow my brother ended up a musician. I ended up writing and, and acting. And my sister's a writer. So uh, the three of us grew up there and uh, uh, stayed in that house forever. We were the... My, my kids actually were the first Van Zants not born in New Jersey since uh, 1684. So I, I felt a little guilty about that coming out to California. <laughs> I tried to shove Adrian on a plane at the last minute so my kids would be born back there, but it didn't work out. <laughs> but I started out, I started out in community theater as an actor because um, I had no idea how to break into the business. I knew I wanted to perform. I knew I wanted to you know, do comedy. And Lucille Ball and I Love Lucy was the, the catalyst that got me into it all. I wanted to do that kind of comedy, real broad stuff that was perfectly believable, not just stupid broad stuff. And uh, I, I studied her timing and I studied the scripts that the writers of her shows wrote. And uh, they sort of taught me how to write and she taught me how to be funny. And... Uh, and from there, I ended up community theater, got me a, a manager in New York and the manager got me, you know, all the, all the usual auditions and Jaws 2 was my first movie and everything took off from there. We'll definitely come back to Jaws 2 in a few moments because I have got a lot of questions about Jaws 2. But uh, I did want to ask also before we get too far ahead, I believe uh, high school is also when you met your writing partner, Jane Milmore, correct? Yes, we were from uh, different high schools. I was from Middletown High School and she was from Keensburg High School. And uh, there was a local theater in Rumson, New Jersey, called The Barn. And uh, they held uh, yearly competitions between high school theater companies, basically. And I, uh, Jane and I met down there in a competition. 
And the producer of the theater uh, ended up putting Jane and me into a Neil Simon comedy the following summer. And that's where we really got to know each other. And, and we started dating and we, and uh, we, we did Neil Simon star spangled girl for about three years. Uh, if there was a, this is the height of dinner theater uh, around the, the country. So if there was a, there was an empty space in any restaurant. They would shove a stage in it, and you'd come into a show. And we did we did that for about three years. And then um, uh, Jaws two took me. Uh, that was my first movie. That took us out to California, and then we'd go back and forth. We'd write plays for New Jersey, New York, and come out to L.A. and do our uh, acting, and then turned it into TV writing. By the time you made it into college, you were actually already teaching, which you just mentioned here. And granted, your students were a bit young, but uh, can you talk to us about your beginnings in teaching? I was always I was always writing, and I ran a children's theater company. Um, wasn't 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 with children; it was adults for children uh, at that same theater. And uh, what I would do is I would write a, sh- a new show every week. And uh, the poor actors who happened to answer the telephone ended up being in the show with no rehearsal whatsoever. <laughs> I, would, I would say, okay, I need you there Saturday morning. And uh, they'd get there at eight in the morning. I'd give them the scripts. We'd rehearse till about noon. And then the, the audience would come in and we'd do the show. It got me into a, a good mindset to write for television because I was cranking things out. And, um, but I would always, um, uh, in terms of teaching, I would, once I got into high school, I would, I went back into the junior high I had gone to and I directed plays for them and, uh, and I, I taught their, their kids. And I, I made a, a, a vow that since I didn't have any connection to show business whatsoever, that if I ever had any modicum of success, I would go back to my hometown and I would, uh, so I did that for, well, I've, I've done that for years where I go to the high school and the junior high and I talk to the kids. So if they have questions, there's nobody to answer the questions. Um, and not, but the one thing I have learned is that there are, there are no rules of how to succeed in this business. So unfortunately, everybody's looking for the quick fix of how do I get there? How do I get there? Well, there's many different routes to go, but, uh, but I, I love doing that for the, for the students. And, um, when we go back and do our plays, um, I'm in California most of the time. When we go back to New Jersey and and introduce a new play, I usually do it at, uh, one of the local colleges. And then I use the the students, the the tech students and the uh, the design students. They work with my people, and they get a pretty good education doing that. And that's always fun to do too. I just think it's very admirable that you've been basically giving back to this acting community, to the theater community, since day, basically day one of your career, the early days of your career, and that you're still doing that today. So, uh, you know, I think it's a really great thing to do. So, thank you for doing that. Well, I enjoy it. Thank you. I mean, it's it's fun for me too. And it's got to be a heck of a learning process, too, especially you mentioned, you know, having to make basically new shows all the time. I mean, you're basically creating at this young age to a very diverse skill set for yourself. That's going to pay off a lot more in the future. Yeah, I've, I've always done about 12 things at once. Uh, you know, I started I started as an actor and then I wrote myself plays to give myself something to act in. Then I started directing so no one would mess up my writing. And then I started producing because I was doing everything anyway. So I did a little bit of everything, but by doing a, a more than one thing at a time, if one thing doesn't work out, you move over to the left and do that one, finish that one. And while you're doing that, you're writing something that's going to be done down the line. So I'm, I'm never, I'm never unemployed and I've uh, been lucky enough in a very, 
weird profession. I've never worked outside of show business at all, ever. So let's jump into some Jaws 2 discussion now real quick, or I should say let's dive into it. That's a terrible pun, so I'm going to resist <laughs> using that. Okay. But, but yeah, you mentioned Jaws 2 was your very first film, and uh, that's got to be a real big deal for you, just coming right to Hollywood and getting in what should be the sequel to one of the greatest blockbusters of all time, and it turns out to be maybe not quite as much of a blockbuster. But uh, what, what can you tell us about your Jaws 2 experience? It was phenomenal. It changed my life. Um, I... Most of the most of the kids in that film, it was their first. It was our first film, and it was a great learning experience. I was on that movie for eleven months, and I was part of the original cast. Uh, they had a, a John Hancock who did Bang the Drum Slowly was the director, and his wife Dorothy Tristan was the writer. And after four weeks of rehearsal up in Martha's Vineyard, and we started shooting a little bit of the film. Um, they let him go, they let her go, and they sent all of us home. And I got a phone call two weeks later to come to Florida because we were going to start up again. And when I got down to Florida, there was a new director, there was a new writer, there was a whole new cast. And I, I still don't know why I wasn't re-auditioned, but a lot of my friends had to fly out to LA and audition for the new director. I didn't do that. I just showed up in Florida and was like all these new faces. Um, and it was quite a learning experience, I will say, because, you know, when you're doing that kind of a blockbuster, there's really no time for the director to really work the little, you know, nuances with you because they're too busy lining up. The boat's going to hit here and then you're going to jump in the water there and the shark comes in here. So uh, I, I learned as I went. And um, the first day we got there, uh, Murray Hamilton, who played the mayor, came up to uh, me and a couple others. And uh, first words out of his mouth to me, and this was my introduction to making a movie. He said, uh, they'll kill you. They'll kill you. As long as they get the shot, they won't care. And then he walked away. So that, that was my introduction to making a movie. And uh, so in, in Jaws 2, um, I was in the original version, I was Quint's son. I was Robert Shaw's son. That went away by the time the rewrite came. and. Um, the uh, I had the I had a fantastic gruesome death at the end of the film. I've seen pictures I, of that. That is pretty gruesome. Yeah, it was great. I got the, the original one was I got chopped in half. I was swimming towards shore. You see me push through the water. Roy Scheider takes my hand and pulls up only the top part of me, and then throws me back in the water. Um, that was too gruesome, and they were afraid they were going to get an R-rated movie. So they they did a, a simpler version, which was still gruesome, um, where my legs got chopped off. Uh, well, I was on, paddling on a pontoon that got changed. And finally they had a stunt man get on the pontoon of the boat and the shark came crashing down on top of him and the shark and the stunt man and the pontoon disappeared under the water. And I saw it in dailies the next day. And I went up to David Brown, the producer, and I said, that doesn't look like me. I want to do that. And he said, well, what? He said, I said, I want to do that. There's no reason I can't do that. I had a little Buster Keaton complex. I think I wanted to do all the stunts. And um, he said, well, okay, we'll let you do that, but we'll reshoot it. But it has to be the last thing we shoot. I said, why does it have to be the last thing we shoot? He said, in case you die. So we filmed it. They put ropes around my waist. They put me on that pontoon that you can see pictures of now. And uh, the shark came crashing down on top of me. The, you know, on mechanical track, like a roller coaster track. 
And the shark and I disappeared underwater at the same time. And uh, looking back, it was one of the stupidest things I ever did in my life because <laughs> I had tons of metal coming down on top of me and scuba divers yanking me with ropes to get out of the way underwater. Uh, but uh, And then I didn't know until I saw the movie, If I Lived or Died, they shot me uh, swimming up when we, the last thing we shot was out in California and they shot me swimming up on the shore and hugging the rocks and, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and I didn't know which they were going to use till we went to see the film, but, uh, it was the, at the, before the star Wars movies came out, it was the, uh, highest grossing, highest grossing sequel of all time for a short period of time. And it's not the first Jaws, be, you know, let's be honest, but it's a pretty good sequel, I thought. And uh, considering the audience doesn't know what goes into the making of a film, they just want to see a good film. But when you know the backstory of the director who, you know, normally you get a year to prepare a movie, he had two weeks. The writer, Carl Gottlieb, from the first Jaws, also the second Jaws, uh, he came in and rewrote the movie as we went. The night before we'd shoot a scene, he'd be writing it in his hotel room, and then we'd show up and do it. So uh, knowing that, those two guys pulled off a, a, a amazing, amazing job. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I, it plays every two minutes on TBS. Or, <laughs> so, so it's been very good to me. <laughs> do you have any stories about working with Roy Scheider? Roy did not want to be there hmm, not at okay. all. He had a uh, he was supposed to do the deer hunter and the they wouldn't let him out of his contract because he had a, a, in his clause to, to do a, a sequel to this. So he was there against his will and had to give up that movie. He barely talked to any of us kids. He just uh, he was there to do his job. And if he wasn't filming, he was sitting on a, a lounge chair in a speedo with one of those, those metal sun reflectors under his face. Um, that was my image of Roy is sitting there with that thing under his face. Uh, he's a perfectly nice guy. Keith Gordon, who was in Jaws 2 and played the younger Roy in All That Jazz, he said he was a completely different guy on that movie because he wanted to be there for that one. And he said he's a real nice guy. But I never really got to talk to him that much. Although they, did a, they threw a birthday party for me, uh, they, well, for all of us, because we were there 11 months. But at my birthday party, he did give me a uh, a Farrah Fawcett puzzle, <laughs> so I still have it somewhere. It, I never opened it. Uh, you know, her 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 poster was made into a, a a puzzle, so that was that was from Roy. That's a pretty good Roy memory. Uh, just having that puzzle, uh, <laughs> I want to see that puzzle yeah. now too. But um, so I've got one other story I wanted to ask you about uh, before we jump into Star Trek, uh, and mm-hmm. that's yeah, as you mentioned earlier that Lucille Ball was one of the primary reasons you wanted to pursue acting and you wanted to go to Hollywood and. I read in your book that you actually did get to meet Lucille early on when you first got to Hollywood. So I'd love to hear that story. And then just also the fact that you did get to work with her in 86, a few years after your Star Trek appearance uh, on, on her show, Life with Lucy, you got to do a scene with Gail Gordon. Uh, but let's just start at the top. Cause I really, in, the, in your book, you write about this. And I love hearing the story. Let's just first start with the first thing you do when Billy uh-huh. Van Zandt gets to Hollywood. Yeah. Most people would go to, uh, you know, the Hollywood Bowl or Dodger stadium, or I went straight from the airport to Lucy's house. I wanted to meet her. And uh, so I, I pull up in front of her house and Jane, who was my girlfriend at the time, she's hot. She hides under the dashboard because she sees me getting out of the car. What are you doing? I said, I got to go meet her. 
And so Jane hid in the car. I walked up the brick walkway. I knock on the door and a houseboy answered the door. And I said, Billy Van Zandt's here to see Lucille Ball. And he said, she's not home. Slammed the door in my face. I got back in the car and we drove away. Ten years later, I had now gotten to know her and been invited to her house. So we're sitting in the house. We're talking about a bunch of different things. And I said, did you ever meet Charlie Chaplin? I said, I, I can see his work in your work, but I never saw a picture of the two of you together. And she said, no, I never met him, but I'll tell you a story. In 1976, my husband and I were in Switzerland and I found out where he lived. So we drove over to his house, but Gary wouldn't get out of the car. He was hiding under the dashboard. So I got out and he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to meet Charlie Chaplin. And she walked up the, wall, the brick walkway. She knocked on the door. And she said, a, a big fat housekeeper answered the door. And uh, I, she said, uh, Lucille Ball's here to see Charlie Chaplin. And she said, he's not home and slammed the door in her face. It was pretty mind blowing for me to hear that story, almost word for word of what happened to me. I'd never told her my version of that story because we had just prior to that had just been talking about uh, how her house was right on the corner and accessible to the street. You know, there's no big wall or anything. And they said, oh, no, if, if fan, fans get out of hand, we just, you know, we press a button and bars come down over the ceiling, uh, over the windows. So I thought, well, I better not tell them my story. Or they're going to throw me out of here and put the bars down. So, But uh, but meeting her was fantastic. Uh, I got to work with her, which was phenomenal for me. Um, and Ann Dusenberry, who was in Jaws 2 with me, was cast to play her daughter on the final series. And she called me as soon as she got the job. And uh, I immediately jumped on a plane, you know, I'm, I'm going to meet Lucy. I want to work with her, you know, and I ended up, did, I did get to work with her, which was phenomenal. That was, that was uh, pretty, you know, a kid in a candy store for me. It was great. Yeah. I got to actually find that episode on YouTube. I don't know if one of the last times that you've seen it, but it is on YouTube. Oh, uh, is it? And that episode is called Lucy makes Kurt despite the dust. So if anybody wants to see it, you guys can check it out. I'll try and put some links up somewhere in our social media, but uh, your, your appearance comes, I think towards like the, uh, the third act of the show and yeah. uh, you're like, you're a delivery person and you get to do a scene with Gail Gordon, which I imagine must've also been really amazing for you. It was so cool. The first day I walked onto the set as an actor, the first week I was there, I was just there to, to watch. And then I, I found a script and I saw a role for myself. So I went and, forced my way into the casting director's office who probably should have called the police. And uh, I insisted I had to have an audition. So I ended up getting that part. And the first day I walked onto the set uh, the following Monday, Gail came up to me and stuck out his hand and said, welcome to the family. That was pretty cool. And uh, the plot made no sense. It made no sense at all. You know, Lucy does something on the hardware store's computer and then the whole world thinks Gail Gordon is dead. It couldn't happen. It didn't make any sense. But I wasn't complaining. I got to work. <laughs> I got to work with them. <laughs> so uh, it was great. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. 
own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, my name is Walker Brandt, and I was privileged to play the role of Cadet Hajar in the episode The First Duty, Star Trek The Next Generation. I was also a guest on Trek Untold a few months ago, and during my interview with Matt, I introduced my new book, Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence. The dedication in Awaken reads to the human spirit, the final frontier within. I'm a Trekkie, I'm a fan, and I have always believed that the final frontier is our unlimited imagination. And the reason I wrote my book is to support the reader, to always remember that when you combine your unlimited imagination with your innocence, you know, that playfulness as a child where you had no fear about the unknown. In fact, every single day you woke up into the unknown and you wanted to explore. That's been my journey. And that's how I believe that we change our reality for the better together because we're all creators and we're all explorers. So I ask you, what excites you? How will you expand and go where you've never been before? What steps will you take to embrace the unknown? So awaken, discovering yourself through the light of your innocence is there to support the reader, to share my journey, to let you know you're not alone, to let you know that if you've been through challenges and difficulties and times in your life where you felt like you just couldn't go on, I've been there with you. And this book is there for you to encourage you to keep getting back up and moving forward into the adventure. So I hope you have a chance to read it. It's titled Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence, and it's available on Amazon. And it's the number one international bestseller. So I hope you get a chance to get on that journey with me. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at walkerbrandt.com or on my social media, Facebook, Instagram. Thanks so much. And I hope we get a chance to connect. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Billy, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion. And your appearance in Star Trek was, in fact, in the Star Trek The Motion Picture, the very first one ever. You got to play one of the uh, Randorites, which is one of the most bizarre, interesting, unique aliens that I don't think we've ever seen in the franchise again. So you were the prototype, and I think one of the last as well. Uh, so. I, ruined, I ruined it for everybody else, I guess. The uh, It was funny. I, I, I interviewed with Robert Wise, which was just uh, you know mind-blowing to get to work with him such a legendary guy and such a nice guy. Um, and at the audition, this never happened, but this is what he told me. Um, he said, uh, it's, uh, it's possible Leonard Nimoy is not going to come to work and do the film. So you may end up being the new alien. And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> I could be the new, not new Spock, but I'd be whatever I was. And uh, he said, uh, well, you never know. The next day, of course, Leonard Nimoy showed up for work and, and that didn't happen. But watching Robert Wise work was pretty fantastic because he, uh, as you know, he was a, a, a legendary editor, Citizen Kane and all that. Um, he, would, he shot the movie according to his edit. 
So if, if you had a master, you know, everybody in it, he'd only shoot enough of what he wanted. Then he'd cut. Then he'd do a close-up for a couple of lines and cut. You can't re-edit his films. He did it exactly the way he wanted it. <laughs> and that was pretty interesting to watch. Um, they did, um, I had I had this big bumped forehead, you know, and uh, yellow contact lenses, which I think were painted with house paint. I couldn't see a thing through them at all. And, uh, and I, back then I weighed, you know, I must've weighed 45 pounds. I was so skinny. And, um, it, I did about an hour's worth of makeup every day. V Neil did my makeup and, um, in the chair next to me would be Leonard Nimoy with the script scribbling. And so he didn't talk to me, scribbling, 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 scribbling. And then, you know, about an hour later, William Shatner would walk in and say, good morning. And Leonard would say, okay, Bill. In this scene, instead of saying this, you're going to say this, and then I'm going to do this, and then you're going to say this, and I'm going to do this, and and Shatner would just go, okay, whatever you want. That was that was William Shatner, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. The work ethic was two different things. Bill Shatner, I loved working with. He gets a bum rap from people. I don't know why. I didn't see anything other than a, a really professional, great guy. And there was so much secrecy involved in the first Star Trek movie. I was not allowed out of my trailer period. I could. I had to eat lunch in there. Uh, there was special security all over the lot because God forbid somebody knows anything about the Star Trek movie. And um, so I snuck my girlfriend, she was in my dressing room, you know, and, and I snuck her onto the set one day and I said, you know, you, know, you got to hide in the back or they're going to, you know, something. So I put her behind cables and boxes and all this stuff so she could see a little bit of what we were doing. And we started shooting a scene and all of a sudden Bill Shatner, wait, stop, stop. And he cut the, he cut the scene and I thought, Oh God, I'm going to get fired. And he pointed back to Jane and he said, you come here, come here. And Jane came forward. He said, you can't see from back there. Somebody get her a chair. And he put the chair right next to the camera and she had a full view of everything we were doing. I loved Bill Shatner. He was fantastic. Michelle was great. I loved her. Um, we, we, we switched dressing rooms because her, her original one was a little too close to the, the studio's men's room. And she was just like, Billy, would you? I said, no, of course not. Just, and uh, uh, what surprised me was all her lines were pasted on the screen of, you know, of her station. And she was just pretty smart. And, she just, <laughs> you know. and the first day I got there, because Ralph Byers, Iva Lane, Ralph Brannon, um, and one other, the four or five of us were the ensemble on the bridge. So we did four months uh, doing that. So I wanted to be, you know, I, I know you, I know you Trekkies know your ship, and I wanted to be good. So I went to uh, George and said, uh, you know, George, I want to, I want to make sure I'm good at this. So, you know, when I'm looking at the screen and my print, which buttons am I pressing? You know, he went, I don't know. I just bang the keys like this. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I just banged the screen like that. DeForest Kelly, I loved, loved him. And I guess his father had been a Baptist preacher. I grew up in a, uh, in an American Baptist church and Ralph Byers also in a Baptist church. So one day the three of us just started singing, <laughs> singing Baptist hymns. And uh, I couldn't remember how I remembered any of them, but uh, 
but that was fun. He was a great guy. Really liked him. Um, and uh, who am I forgetting? Walter was great, really great, uh, really friendly. It felt like, and I guess it was for everybody, it was whatever had gone on in the past didn't matter. It was one big happy family as far as I saw when we were shooting the thing. And um, Gene Ronberry, uh, I loved, I just loved him. I used to, I got frustrated because I'm, you know, I'm in the background pressing buttons and I, I had a couple lines that all got, I think they all got cut out except for the director cut. But um, I, I was frustrated that I didn't have enough to do. So I used to write letters from Robert Wise to Gene Roddenberry and from Gene Roddenberry to Robert Wise. And I'd slip, you know, I'd slip them the, the notes. I'd, oh, uh, uh, Gene, Rob, uh, Robert Wise said to give this to you, you know. And they would say, uh, we really have to, we have to give Billy much more to do. And, uh, I, you know, let's give him a good death scene if we can't, you know, if you, and you go back and forth that way. And I eventually got caught because I wrote something to, to I guess I wrote it to Robert Wise, uh, commenting as if I was Gene, talking about how low I, he wore suspenders and his pants were always hanging off of him. And I basically insulted, insulted the poor man about how low his pants were. And Robert, if you get a chance, could you buy me a belt? Because my pants keep falling down. And uh, it, it, it had caught on to the point where the, you know, the, uh, the, the guy who ran the boom would be reading it. And, and everybody on a headset would hear the whole thing. And I didn't realize at the time, I thought it was just a little private joke going back and forth. And suddenly everybody started laughing. And then uh, Gene apparently was standing right next to whoever was hearing the thing. So he, uh, he heard me insult the, his wearing of the pants. Um, but really nice, really nice guy. And uh, it's funny, I, I never made the connection that Lucille Ball okayed the show. Uh, you know, I wish I'd talked to them about it. So there's another, another tie-in. And oh, yeah. uh, she didn't just, she, she saved the show, really. It's a whole other story for a whole other episode. We've actually talked about that in the past. We've had uh, Mark Cushman, who's a Star Trek historian, come on the show. And actually, he told us the exact story of what Lucille Ball really did to help save Star Trek. So, yeah, crazy connection. Fantastic. And then uh, I think the next movie I did was Taps at a military academy. And my character, not not by my doing, it was just in the script, just happened to be a Trekkie watching Star Trek, you know. So it was it was kind of fun for me to tie it all together. Being a viewer of the original series back when it first aired, there are some pretty big cosmetic changes to Star Trek The Motion Picture. And we're talking not just the change of the ship design, but more so the wardrobe and the costumes, the makeup, all that kind of thing has kind of changed in the years that it's been since that first series aired. So when you first came on set and found out what your costume was going to look like and what this was the new Starfleet uniform was, how did you feel about that? I hated those costumes. Because they were, they could have been put on intravenously. They were so tight, and we couldn't. They had slant boards because, God forbid, you have wrinkles behind your knees if you sat down. So it was uncomfortable the entire time, and uh, and 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 luckily for the the uh, the regular guys, nobody had put on any weight <laughs> at that point. So we, they got away with it. They couldn't get away with that as the series went on, uh, but the uh, they got away with the initial one. But I, I, somebody told me the, that my costume sold for like 30 grand at some, some uh, eBay thing. 
If I'd known that, I would have stolen it. But I, I never took anything home from that show. Uh, but uh, yeah, the costumes were uh, were tight to say the least. Yeah, thank God I was skinny back then. We also just recently uh, interviewed Steve Neal, in fact. And uh, were you aware of the nickname that they had for your alien? I there were a couple actually. There's one I read that I never heard was Bumphead or something like that, but. Ralph Byers, our little ensemble, referred to me as the geek because I just looked like a geek in a circus, I guess. And uh, I, I just found some old photos of, taken the first day they did the makeup, too. And it says, you know, the geek and Ralph. The funny thing about the photographs, I don't I don't own any good photographs of my character. I know they exist because they're on a puzzle I have in the back somewhere. Uh, there was a jigsaw puzzle with a good color picture of me on it. It's like, oh, I never saw that. Um, but uh, so I took one, you know, uh, or Jane took one. And uh, that had been the one I, I used forever. Uh, when anybody said Star Trek, I said, oh, yeah. My brother used to keep it in a frame on his piano with no explanation whatsoever. So people would come in and see this horrifying looking thing. What is that? Oh, that's my brother. And no explanation that that was like from Star Trek. It's just, oh, that's my brother. And people go, oh, my God, you poor, you poor guy. <laughs> it's a very, very, very unique alien design. It's kind of like David Lynch made a Star Trek character. It's it's very unique is really the only word I can say. That's all I'm going to keep about that one. But um, do you remember if the makeup for that character had changed at all from when you did those first tests to when you actually made it on screen? No. It's no, always the same. Exactly, okay, Exactly the same. Uh, they did a mold of my head, which is actually on top of the bookcase up there. But for some reason, I remember sticking a, having a straw in my mouth and thinking I was going to choke to death. But the, the mold is only from the nose up for some reason, uh, I guess, because I didn't have to build anything down here. That was exactly what it was supposed to be. What I didn't know until the movie was over was that I was a teenager in, in the, a teenage Randorite. Rand uh, apparently they live a couple hundred years. So, uh, but no, <laughs> the weird thing, the, 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 I don't think anybody's knows this. Robert Wise told me, cause I, my voice, you can hear my voice. It's rather distinctive and it's a little cartoony. Um, I said to him, what do you want me to do with my voice? And he said, Oh, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll do something weird to it in post. I said, okay, great. So I just said my lines. Well, they didn't change anything in my voice. So, so when you see the director's cut, it's Billy in a, in a in a mask, basically talking. So that was kind of odd. But he never did anything with it. Yeah, and we talked earlier about Robert Weiss and his directing style. And I have to say, just rewatching the movie again, you know, as much as the movie for me turns into a kind of a slog once the Enterprise actually lifts off into space again, uh, I think it's one of the most beautifully shot Star Trek films of all time. And especially editing wise, I mean, again, some things get a little slow, but that's kind of what the genre of sci-fi was at the time. It was trying to be that 2001 Space Odyssey kind of film. Yes, that's but, right. But it was beautiful to look at. And some of the shots were gorgeous. I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, when you first saw the movie, when it was first premiered versus, let's say, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later. Oh, it was quite exciting. It was really exciting. because I saw it at, uh, I can't remember the name of the theater now. It was in New York for the premiere. Um, and to see that on a huge screen, because I had, uh, Mr. Wise had, had nicely put a little edit thing of one of my bits together and showed me on the set one day. And I was like, oh, this is really fantastic. But to see 
just to hear the music on the big screen was phenomenal. And, uh, and the first shots of that, sh of the ship, I mean, it, 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 looking back, it's incredibly slow, but, uh, I remember the audience going nuts for it because how long had they been waiting for that film? You know? Um, yeah, it was, it was very exciting. Um, and I liked everybody in it. I thought uh, uh, Stephen Collins did a good job and Persis Gambata did a good job. There was one day that uh, Franklin Seals, who that was the other one. Franklin Seals was also on the on the ship, uh, on the ensemble with me. Um, he uh, he came in with a batch of uh, uh, pot brownies, but never told anybody they were pot brownies. I didn't I wasn't there for that. But the entire cast got bombed on these things. And I think they ended up cutting the day short. <laughs> but uh, uh, Franklin, um, really, really good actor, too. He, he'd left, he got cast in the movie The Onion Field, uh, one of the three leads. And they had to negotiate to get him out of, the, out of the show. So they killed his character. And that's when I started writing, well, if he can get killed, how, kill me, too. <laughs> kill me. Give me something to do. Uh, but... Uh, the funny thing is right before the movie came out, it was the only time I've ever been invited to a Star Trek convention. I don't, I don't know what I did folks, but I it was the only time I ever got invited. It was before the movie came out in New York. And, um, they were the people who, who asked me to come were really sweet. They put me up. I, and I saw all these signs throughout the convention that said, surprise guest from Star Trek, the motion picture without my name. And I thought, what are they doing to me? Everybody's going to think it's Nimoy or Shatner or, and it's going to be me and nobody's going to know who I am. This is humiliating. You Trekkie guys, I came out, they said, and Billy Van Zandt, you knew everything about Jaws too. You knew about my plays. You know, it was crazy how, how well, well researched everything was. And I had a fantastic time and I did a Q and a, and uh, it's the only time I've ever been invited. My ex-wife, uh, Adrienne Barbeau, uh, she was in one of the Star Trek uh, TV shows and she goes to these conventions out in Vegas, I guess. And at one point she said, you know, my husband's in Star, Star Trek, the motion picture. Would you like him to come? No, that's okay. <laughs> So I don't know what I did, but uh, but uh, if the world ever opens up again, invite me back. I hope we get to meet you at a convention one of these days, too. And I'm glad you brought up uh, Adrienne Barbeau, because uh, as you mentioned, she was actually in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. She was Senator Kretok. And I was going to ask if you had a chance to visit the DS9 set when she was appearing. I didn't. I didn't. And I and I don't know. I must have been working or out of town or something because I should. I, I would love to have gone. I really would love to have gone. Um but uh, she had fun doing that. She, she did a couple episodes of that, I think. And you already mentioned your other indirect Star Trek uh, reference, Star Trek Connection, which was Taps, which, of course, George C. Scott, Tom Cruise, Sean Penn, Giancarlo Esposito. Your character was Bug. Um, can you tell us anything about why that character was so obsessed with Star Trek? Well, why, why did they write that in there? Why was it so important to his character? I, they had me obsessed with um, Jim Morrison, which didn't fit. That one didn't make any sense to me, but but also with Star Trek. Uh, well, I was I was the tech I was the techie I was the radio guy, so it, it made perfect sense for you know for for him to to be a, a Trekkie. It was it was really it was really funny because half the I don't think most of the guys knew I had been in the film, 
And uh, I told them afterwards, they thought it was, did they do that? Did they write it in that way on purpose? I said, I, that got me. But um, yeah, that was, that was pretty fun. The, the, the funny thing about that movie to me was it was uh, Tap starring George C. Scott and Timothy Hutton. Well, now it's not that. Now it's Tap starring Sean Penn and Tom Cruise. <laughs> and uh, Giancarlo, I still run into now and then. He actually just worked with Adrienne on the, on the Creep Show TV show. Uh, I'm so happy for his success. He's, he's so good. Um, and uh, Sean and I palled around for a couple of years. And Tom, oh, to a lesser degree, but uh, Tom is always career focused, man, career focused. Um, and in fact, the, the first time Tom came out to California, Sean lived here and I was going back and forth. But the first time uh, uh, Tom flew out to California, we picked him up and Sean and I picked him up at the airport and uh, took him straight to Lucy's house. Because <laughs> Sean always thought, because I was always, always, always driving by going, maybe she's going to walk out the front door. Well, she never came out the front door. The garage was in the back. Anyway, uh, so I, so Tom didn't know what we were doing, why we were doing it. Sean thought it was hilariously funny because it was so weird. And I was trying to meet Lucille Ball. So at one point, uh, Lucy, if you looked outside your window, you would have seen Sean and Tom and me parked on the curb waiting for you to come out. So, yeah, I, I stalked Lucy <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> uh yeah, but we, the three of us, uh, we kept in touch. I haven't, I haven't talked to either one in a while, but um, the uh, when Sean got married to Madonna, I went to that wedding, and um, I had just put together uh, uh, a film that he was in called At Close Range with Christopher Walken. Great film, I thought. But somebody had sent me the script to get it to my brother, who was in Bruce Springsteen's band, because they wanted to get the... Bruce to approve music to try and get the film made, all this stuff. And I don't do those kind of things. I don't take advantage of friends. So, um, so they got me the script. I read it. I'm like, this is a phenomenal script. And I was friends with Sean. I said, you got to, you have to option this thing. You have to star in this. And he read it and he flipped for it. And he said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to option this. I'm going to produce it. I'm going to be the lead. And you're going to play this, this other small role. I said, fantastic. So, I, about six months go by and I get a phone call from the director saying that, I'm sorry, but you're too old for this role. Like, oh, okay. And I understand these things and it's fine. So I'm at Shauna Madonna's wedding and I'm talking to Tom Cruise and uh, this guy, older guy comes up to talk to us. And uh, I said, how do you know Sean? He said, Oh, I was just in a film with him. I said, Oh really? What role did you play? And he mentions my role. And Tom looked at this guy who looked older than me and he looked at me and he knew I got screwed out of the film and he starts laughing at me. So I thought, Oh, I'll get even with you. So at the end of the night, Tom says, look, Billy, can you drive me to my car? I parked miles away and I took a cab because the paparazzi are all over me. They're just all over me. I said, yeah, sure. I said, here's what I'll do. I'll get my car from the valet. I'll signal to you. You come in, Jump in my car. I'll take you to your car. Paparazzi will never, you know, see. He said, "Fantastic." So I got my car from the valet. I signaled to Tom. He came out, and I took off, and I left him there. 
surrounded by all these photographers and they're snapping away at him. It was his worst nightmare. And uh, he then jumped in, <laughs> he jumped in Andy Warhol's car and said, when they took him to his car. But uh, I thought, all right, I got even with you at least. <laughs> So I'd like to spend some time discussing some of your writing career as well. And that's very much the focus of your book, Get in the Car, Jane. Uh, and so, yeah, let's just start with one of my favorites, thing, and that's Newhart. And that was one of your first big writing gigs as well. So uh, just talk to yeah. us about how you got on Newhart and what you learned during that experience. Newhart spoiled me for everything that came after afterwards. Um, my plays had taken off. Uh, I think we got 20, we have 25 plays that have been produced, published all over the world. And after maybe four or five of those shows, no, probably more than that, um, we got a call to come out to L.A. um, because the the Newhart staff was looking to hire playwrights. And um, they they brought us in. Lucky for me, uh, the two guys running the show were Mark Egan and Mark Solomon, who had studied and worked for Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Davis who created and wrote I Love Lucy. So there was another connection. And so they worked in the same way that Bob and Madeline worked, hour-wise, you work from nine to five, that's it. Because um, I remember Madeline telling me way back that they worked from nine to five. And I said, why? And she said, if you can't do the job by five o'clock, you shouldn't be doing it. So that's the mindset, you know? And, uh, and Mark and Mark were also theater guys. So we had a lot of connections there. So they hired us and uh, we had the first two weeks of the job was simply sitting there watching seven seasons of shows um, to make sure we didn't duplicate any storylines. So we knew all the nuances of all the characters and we can see you know, strengths and weaknesses of different actors. And, and uh, it, was, it was an amazing learning experience. Uh, Bob Newhart, one of the most lovely giving professional people you ever met the whole the whole set felt like a one big family and uh, there were never any egos there was no it was great and and it showed me right then immediately that the star of your show sets the tone for your show and if you have the right star it's a dream job and if you have the wrong star it is a nightmare and, uh, and you earn every dime <laughs> you're making on it. But uh, so we did the we did that one season. Uh, the New Heart Show originally was uh, Bob and his wife own a, a bed and breakfast in Vermont, and it was a really simple little show that um, Barry Kemp, who also did Coach, uh, he it was his show originally. By the time our season, I think we were seventh seventh season. By the time we came in, the show had gotten broader and broader and broader, and it suddenly had turned into Green Acres, which was great for me because I love Green Acres. So it was very surreal. We had a lot of bizarre things with Larry Darrell and Darrell. Suddenly they're concert pianists and Johnny Carson's paying their gas bill. It was just a strange, strange season, but it was really fun. I'm still friends with Julia Duffy, um, Peter Scolari, and uh, and. Uh, and Julia called me up after my book came out and she said it brought back so many memories and that, that Bob loved it too. And it's like, Oh, this is cool. Um, and then I also got the chance on that show to write for Don Rickles for the first time. And then we ended up creating a show for him later on. Um, it was, a, it was a, just a dream job. And the funny part for me was it was 
you did one, you did it like a play. You shot it on Friday nights at seven o'clock and every scene was one take and then move on to the next scene. So you were done in an hour and a half and we had to be done in an hour and a half because Bob Newhart had a standing dinner reservation at nine o'clock down the street and God forbid you blow that for him. So, so it was just, you shoot it, you're done. And it was great. And it ruined me for everything that came afterwards. Cause a lot of producers like to do four or five takes. You're there till three in the morning. We didn't do any of that. Yeah. Moving from dream jobs to nightmare jobs, as you mentioned, uh, the <laughs> one, I don't want to give away everything that's in the books. I really want folks to read all these stories oh, yeah. in particular, but you worked on Martin Lawrence's show, Martin. And that sounded just like one of the, reading that gave me heart palpitations. I, I feel so bad for it. That sounded like a terrible experience uh, for a show that was really good. But yeah, just tell us a little bit about working with Martin and just the, the challenges and the difficultness of. I will say in his defense, he was, he was no, no question. He was difficult to work with. He would threaten to kill us if the scripts weren't funnier, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and mean it by the way. Uh, but I, I will defend him this way that when you're a stand-up comedian, You've been your own writer, producer, director for however many years you've been a stand-up comedian. Then you come to do a sitcom. You have people like me going, I know you've been doing this for years, but now I'm in charge. I'm going to tell you what's funny and what's not funny. I'm going to tell you what works and what doesn't work. And it's a very weird transition period of trust that you have to earn. We didn't get that far with Martin in terms of that trust, but... Um, we were we were hired because for two reasons. One, one they they knew we we wrote male female stuff because from our plays and all that. Uh, but we originally were asked to uh, to meet on uh, have a take a meeting for the Martin Lawrence project. Well, in California, Martin Lawrence is a series of galleries in all these malls. So I thought it was a I thought it was a a gallery sitcom. I didn't know, and then finally I. We, they sent us the tape on Martin and I saw him and I thought, this is one of the funniest people I've ever seen. He was brilliantly funny. And what we did on that show had, uh, to my knowledge, had not occurred prior to that. We, we, we were a combination of a sitcom, traditional sitcom and a sketch show. So in the middle of all these things, he'd be playing his mother with a mustache and, you know, and Shanene and all these people. And then you could back into the story. And, what Martin would do, which was brilliant and chancy, he, he liked Bob Newhart, one take and move on. And if you make a mistake, somebody covers and you keep going. You don't go back and do pickups. Um, he would go off script anytime he felt like it. And he would start doing physical bits. And you just kept the camera on him. And thank God for Tisha Campbell, who... Her, she had the toughest job of all. She had to find him as a character. She had to find him hilariously funny. She had to find him sexy. And she had to somehow maneuver whatever he was improvising back into the script so you could finish the scene. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, he reminded me a lot of Jerry Lewis um, in this way. Jerry Lewis would do a bit, a physical bit that should have lasted, you know, 20 seconds. And he'd do it for three minutes. And you'd stop laughing, and then you start laughing again at the audacity of how long he was stretching this thing out. Martin worked the same exact way. It, it just—it was really fun to watch. Uh, we also had a ton of uh, of uh, catchphrases come out of that, and the one that I'm—I'm uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, America, but you go, girl, 
started with that show um, purely as a as a mistake. Martin, in the middle of taping, he, he blew his line. And rather than stop, he just finished the sentence with, you go, girl. And we, we laughed at him because he was so sweet about what he was doing. And we thought, oh, that's going back in the script. So we kept putting it in. And then uh, we won a People's Choice Award a couple months later. And it hadn't quite caught on yet, I guess. And somebody in the audience, uh, Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg was presenting and somebody yelled, you go, girl. And she thought she was being heckled because it hadn't caught on. Now, then it's, you know, on time, cover of time and Newsweek and everybody uses that expression. But it was, that was all Martin and it was, an, it was a mistake. <laughs> it was a mistake. <laughs> so we have Martin Lawrence to thank for one of the most empowering phrases in all feminism, basically. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> So aside from Martin, you've worked with the Wayans brothers, you've worked with Andrew Dice Clay, Richard Lewis, Don Rickles, you mentioned before, many, many, many others. Uh, and yeah, I just mentioned that having read the book that Martin Lawrence, it was definitely one of the more challenging ones, but uh, who would you say was ultimately the most controlling star you had to work for? Or, and who was the one that would trust you the most to actually let you do your job? Most controlling was Martin, without question. Easy uh, answer there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have to think twice about that one. Uh, the easiest was probably Don Rickles. He um, he came to us when we first were going to do the show. Richard Lewis asked us to write the show. Uh, we had worked for him on Anything But Love with Jamie Lee Curtis. And um, Don came to us and he said, don't do to me what they did on CPO Sharky, which was an earlier show of his. And I said, what did they do? He said, they would say Don enters and then they'd leave it up to me to figure out the insults of all the people standing around me. Don't make me do that. So we didn't. We wrote it. We wrote it all out for him, and he was happy to get it that way. And uh, we, unfortunately, for that show, and it was a really good show, it came out at the the beginning of the height of political correctness. So that's Don's entire act, you know. And uh, so we didn't last too long. the The audiences loved us. The critics hated us. <laughs> I have a I have a stack of two inches thick of just insulting reviews that we got on that show. Uh, the, the LA Times said Jane and I should be beaten with wire hangers for writing this show. But uh, Don was Don was quite easy. Um, let me think through. The Wayans brothers were challenging, uh, mostly because of the time element. Uh, we were, we had to create, we came in late to that. We had to replace somebody and we had to create the show, write it, cast it, and film it and edit it and turn it into the network in five weeks. That was a rough five weeks. The nice thing for with, with them was we would bring them into the writer's room and they could act out stuff before we put it in the script to see if it worked. So I was like, oh, that's good. Put it in. You know? um, and you don't get that luxury with a lot of stand-up comedians because they think everything that comes out of their mouth is brilliant, you know. Um, but the, they, worked, they, they were part of the team, the writing team. They, they, there was no star ego involved in that. Um, but I, I've worked with, uh, we worked with a lot of great people, mostly stand up comedians. And, uh, I think the thing to do when you're working with a stand up comedian, which a lot of people don't do is you have to trust that they know their product. They know why they're funny, what makes them funny. And you got to listen, you know, to a degree. I mean, I still have to, we still have to be the people at the end going, no, nah, that didn't quite fit the story. Um, because when you're writing a sitcom, if you're writing any any comedy, any good comedy, 
if it doesn't propel the story, it shouldn't be in the script. I don't care how funny it is. Take it out. You know? And uh, so that's, that's what we learned. And I also, from, from uh, Phyllis Diller, one of my, one of my stand-up heroes from, from the old days, uh, she taught me, if you have the most brilliant joke in the world, but only 80% of your audience gets it, it's the wrong joke. Take it out. Put something that 100% of the audience is going to get. And at first, you're like, I don't want to do that because that joke is so... And then you realize, no, I'm, I'm alienating people if they're not understanding the joke. So um, so that's, an, that's another little tidbit of writing. I'm glad you mentioned Phil Stiller because in your book, you, know, you write about how you helped get a lot of some of these uh, older actors some more working gigs like Kay Ballard, Elaine Stritch, uh, Garrett Morris. Uh, that was another very admirable thing that you did to kind of help get these people back into the spotlight and remind them that they exist. Um, so... I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't doing it for them. I was doing it for me. Exactly. It a, yeah. <laughs> it was a kid. I, I, I finally got some power and I thought all the people that I used to watch and that I love, why aren't they working? Let's bring them in. So we did. We ran the, the one that I was the, the proudest of uh, pulling off was I got Hunts Hall from the Bowery boys out of retirement to do a bit part on the Don Rickle show. And uh, he could, he was so sweet, just so sweet. And, uh, I remember at the table reading, the network immediately came to us and said, you got to fire him. I said, what do you mean I got to fire him? Well, he's too old. He's never going to be able to memorize this. I said, we just, the guy's been around a while. Would you just give him a second? By the end of the week, they had asked him to be in three different pilots because he, he was so good. <laughs> so in addition to writing TV shows and, of course, your acting career, too, you've also got a very extensive career of writing plays, which we've alluded to throughout this interview. And just to name a few of those shows. Those are the things that you've also starred, uh, as well as Jane Milmore. She was in many of those, too. Uh, we're yeah. talking shows like Drop Dead, High School Reunion, The Musical, Confessions of a Dirty Blonde, the property known as Garland, which I believe Adrian Barbeau was in. Uh, mm-hmm. But the one I want to discuss today that I think our viewers might want to hear the most about is uh, you've got hate mail. I feel like it's still a very topical, timely play. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that really great premise? It is It is topical to the point where it is now done all over the world, which blows my mind because the premise translates in every language. The premise, it, this is actually the story of Jane's divorce told through emails. Um, the, uh, the premise is the, a husband, played by me, He's cheating on his wife, played by Jane, and he writes a dirty email to his girlfriend and accidentally sends it to his wife. And then the marriage starts to disintegrate. And we did the whole thing with five laptop computers. And then as the years went on, we did it with iPads and telephones and all that stuff. It was, it was five people sitting at five laptop computers telling the story of a divorce told through emails. And the fun part of that was the scripts were on the laptop. So even if you had the show memorized, you could bring in guest stars to play this role for a night because the script's right there. So we had, uh, we had uh, Richard Kind come in and Caroline Aaron from uh, uh, Mrs. Maisel and uh, Jeff Keller, who was Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. All these people came in to do our show for one-time bits. Um, and it's just the premise is, you know, how many, how many, times have you hit the word send on something that you shouldn't have sent to the wrong person, a draft that was too mean, you know, all these things, but it, it's translated all over the world. We, um, I, it won the best play in Mexico, which is a pretty big country. Um, and I went down to see that, which was a ball in Mexico city. 
Um, and it was starring all these uh, these Mexican soap opera actors. And I didn't know who anybody was, but the audience was going crazy for all these people. I was like, okay, great. And uh, and then it's done right now. It's being it's it's being done on Zoom in Hungary because uh, they've been doing the show over there for five years. And Poland, they do that a lot. It's all over the place. And uh, you know, when when we originally wrote these plays, they were for us. You know, they, they, we published them as a lark. The shows took off, but never in my wildest dreams I think they'd be doing them in other languages around the, the world. It's pretty pretty cool. What I find interesting now is you mentioned that this is being done via Zoom. And unfortunately, you know, we're still doing this episode during the COVID-19 pandemic. And theater in particular has been hit so hard. It's, the industry is going to be devastated for years to come, I imagine. Uh, yeah. what's, what's your thoughts about how theater is going to be able to make a comeback once there's a vaccine or once things hopefully get better? Can it make a fall on comeback? Yes, I would say by the time there's a vaccine, a working vaccine, and uh, and everybody's gotten it, you know, I have a thing. I think there's going to be a wave of people who go, I'm not trying that first one. I'll get the second one. <laughs> you know? uh, but uh, I think if you try to, you know, a little, a lot of theaters out here are doing this where they're taking out every other seat out of their theater and still nobody's going to go, I don't think. Um, and, and tell me what theater can survive on 50 or 30% capacity. You can't right now. Full capacity theaters still have to have fundraisers just to survive. So I think we are screwed till probably fall of next year, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I had stuff all over the world and everything shut down immediately. It's like, wow, that's pretty eye opening. And Europe just started back doing some of my shows. And now that's stopped again, too, um, for the most part. So I think, yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of Zoom theater, which uh, some of them are fantastic and some of them are like, yeah, you shouldn't do this. <laughs> but uh, uh, And then there's uh, there's a lot of taped shows that you can, uh, Broadway shows on Broadway.com and stuff that show full shows. And it's like, it's a good good time to catch up on some things you haven't seen. But I think we're pretty much screwed till, till fall of next year. Uh, same for uh, music. I would love to be able to go to a concert again. Um, and uh, But TV is is back. TV is, it, it adds two hours to your workday with all the take your temperature, take your test, do the thing. Um, but out here, it's starting up pr- uh, pretty well. So I think we got to, that part of the industry and film, I think we're going to be okay. It's just the live stuff that we're, and they're, you know, they're, more important things to worry about right now, but uh, uh, it's going to be a while. And we should add that we're recording this interview right now. It's November, 2020. So uh, we're talking about fall 2021, uh, maybe fall 2022. Which one do you think it's going to be? It'll be 21 or 22? 21. 21. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's still going to be, it's going to be a long way still. I mean, it's basically been over a year that theaters in New York have been shut down and that's rough. It's real rough. Yeah. I mean, it. you know, I, I, I can make a living writing, but there are a lot of actor friends who are in New York who, who, you know, make their living on Broadway. They're just screwed right now. Just screwed. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, on that happy note. <laughs> yeah, so on that happy note. And so I do want to add also that we're posting this on February 4th, 2021. And that's also the one year passing of your writing partner, Jay Milmore, who we've mentioned a lot throughout this episode here. Uh, I'm just, you know, can you share with us one of your favorite stories about Jay? And I know you've got so many, but is there one that just kind of stands out in particular that our audience in particular might enjoy hearing? Oh, let me see. Let me see. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of any Star Trek related stories from Jay. 
I will say I was I was happily shocked that when I first met her, she was as much a fan as I am. You know, she she used to watch all the episodes with me too. Jane was uh, Jane was and and remains uh, such a, a part of my life. Uh, I don't see that ever changing. You know, I still I still talk to her, and we still have half finished projects left and right because we do so much stuff. Never thought she was going to pass away. She she got uh, pancreatic cancer out of the blue. Um, no no symptoms, just turned yellow one day, and they said, uh, "Surprise, you have this." And she fought it for 15 months. She was a tough, tough little thing. She and uh, all of us, we thought it's got to be a misdiagnosis. It's uh, whatever it is, because she had so much drive, so much energy. She she saw the world through the eyes of of a child sometimes, which was so refreshing and so optimistic. And, and uh, it's just a cruel crime that she's she's gone. Um to the point where she she thought we all thought she was going to keep going. She insisted we work two, three days a week the entire time she was sick because, you know, once this illness is out of the way, then we got to get back and finish this and do that. She had much as much drive as, as I do. And um, and I'm trying to think of a funny story. I, don't, I, I can't think of any funny stories because I'm still grieving a year later. So, <laughs> but uh, 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 I'll get back to you on that. But uh, I'll, I'll throw something your way, in fact, and say you guys are writing partners. There's a lot of pros and cons to being uh, writing partners. So uh, is there any stories about you two just having basically some kind of clash or something really silly, ultimately? Oh, all the time. All the time. People used to say that uh, how do Billy and Jane write? They just fight until they have a finished script. And uh, in fact, when I was putting this book together, uh, Jane, she was around long enough to to read the whole book. She edited a couple of things, picked the pictures for the book. And at one point she said, I didn't throw a teapot at you. I threw a vacuum cleaner at you. I said, oh, change that. That's going back in the book. Jane had the, had the, um, the talent. I, I, every, every, anytime I'm being funny, it's well thought out. Uh, uh, crafting the joke, crafting the story, the bit, whatever it is. Jane was always off the top of her head, the funniest person in the room. But you ask her what she said, and she had no idea. Oh, that was good. Repeat that back. What did I say? So my job through the 46 years we were together was to have a pen ready. And while we were thinking of things, the second she'd say something, I'd scribble it down. And then, because if I read it back to her, she'd try and fine tune what she had already done. And the first one was the right one. Um, and uh, very strong. Uh, she was one of the few uh, when we started very few female showrunners in sitcoms and uh and brilliant at it she took care of every costume and uh and hair makeup that we had on the show she would handle all the difficult stuff for me because i don't like talking to the network people studio people and getting their notes i hate it um so jane would be the one fighting fighting off people while we're trying to keep control of our shows uh, to the point where I think some people thought, gee, she's a bitch. And they didn't realize I was the one going, Jane, you tell them, you tell them this. And she would just <laughs> go take care of it. So, uh, but it wasn't Jane, folks. It was me. Um, and uh, she handled Elaine Stritch, which was no easy task. Uh, she handled Martin, which was no easy task. Uh, there was one time he uh, he was bitching about uh, there were too many white people at this meeting. And he, you know, go get up so all the black guys can sit down. And we said, but 
there are no black guys at this meeting right now. Well, go get them. It's like, okay. So we wrote, we called to the writer's room and said, can you send down four black guys? We need to, and uh, it was ridiculous. But anyway, so while all that's going on, Jane turned to Martin and went, you know, I'm the only woman here and nobody seems to have a problem with that. And that shut him up. <laughs> that shut him up. <laughs> so that's Jane. She's left behind quite a legacy of just some amazing work. And really, she was a pioneer, as you mentioned, one of the first women showrunners in the industry. So it's a pretty big thing. Uh, what would you say is the play that you wrote that with her that you're most proud of, that you think most represents uh, you personally and her personally? Well, uh, our first play was Love, Sex, and the IRS. That, that's done all over the Great world. Great title. And that's... Uh, that was us at our more at our most innocent, I would say. For for Jane, there, there's a, a musical we wrote called "Merrily We Dance and Sing," subtitled "The Naughty Boy," which is about a, a bad company of community theater actors putting on an operetta while there's an escaped lunatic from the uh, an escape murderer somewhere loose in the theater, and he would come in, run through the audience, and end up in the show on stage. It was a crazy show. Jane was so brilliant in that, and uh, that one, that one, I think is probably her best. Or I will say, Drop Dead, where she played the uh, the girlfriend of the producer, and he made her the star of the the play within the play. And uh, she's pretty funny. There's there's clips of that. Uh, there's clips of both of those shows on YouTube somewhere. Um, those are the two I think she's the best in, and. Uh, Writing wise, I think you've got hate mail, uh, probably, probably one of our best and uh, night at the nutcracker, which was a Marx brother tribute, um, that we wrote and that came about because I wanted to, I was sitting there watching a night at the opera with my kids going, ah, oh, I wish I'd written for these guys. And the next day I went into work and I said, I know what I want to do the next show, Jane. And she said, I know, I know what I want to do. I want to do a Christmas show. I said, well, I want to do a Marx Brothers show. She said, A Night at the Nutcracker. Sold. So we had the plot in five minutes. And uh, that one's really good. There's a, you can see that a little clip of that on YouTube, too. Thank God for YouTube. Um, but Jane's mark is on everything we did and, uh, and, and things to come, because I, I, I have a treasure trove of, of half-finished things that we started. Um, so she'll be around for a while. Well, I look forward to seeing those projects come to fruition at some point, hopefully sooner than later. But for people in our audience today who are listening or watching and are looking to become writers, whether it be TV or film, what is something you could say to kind of help them learn how to make the most effective script or screenplay? Uh, it has to be something you're passionate about. Don't write to please other people, only write to please yourself. And I don't believe in writer's block. I think that's just a waste of time. I think uh, it's the easiest thing to do is rewrite. So get it on paper, even if it's atrocious, because then you look at it and go, oh, no, that's wrong. I can fix that. No, that's wrong, too. I'll fix that. That's pretty good. I'll keep that. Um, that's one. Uh, two is there are no rules to how, how this works in show business. Uh, you know, you, you can make a movie on your phone. So go do that. Um, there's, there's no real straight avenue to success in this business. A lot of it has to do with people, you know, and a lot of it has to do with luck, but you have to have talent in the first place. 
And the only way you nurture that is by doing it more and more and more. Um, when you're first starting out, the first scripts you write you think are brilliant. Then you look at them 10 years later and go, oh, my God, that's horrible. Um, there isn't one of our shows, even the successful ones, where I, I, I don't enjoy watching them because it's like, oh, I did that wrong. Oh, I should fix that. I should fix that. Uh, if you're going into sitcom writing, you have um, the only the only calling card you have as a writer in sitcoms is called a spec script. You write a script on speculation for free. And that has to be better than every script you've ever read in your life. It probably has to be better than any script you'll ever get hired to write because people will only read you one time. And, you know, if you do a, a mediocre thing because you want to get it out fast and they read it and they go, eh, and you write a second one that's brilliant, you're going to send it to people and the producers are going to go, oh, I read him already. I didn't like him. You know, so make sure it's perfect and, and there's nothing wrong with sitting, put finish your script, put it down, walk away from it for a good while, then go back and look at it again and you'll find things uh, that were glaring, <laughs> that are glaringly wrong. Um, but primarily the uh, take notes from everybody. Don't, 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 you know, don't put them in the script, but listen to them. Um, if 12 people are giving you different notes on page 12 because they think it'd be funnier if you do this or this didn't make sense. It, it probably they, their notes could be wrong, but page 12 is where you got to look at a problem, you know? Uh, and um, so that's a lot of stuff right in a little, a little, little time period there, but, uh, but write for yourself. The only people you really have to answer to is the audience. Some great information. And just on a similar note, what's something that you know today as a writer that you wish you knew back when you first started? Oh, the one I said earlier, if it doesn't propel the story, it's the wrong joke. Uh, you, you don't stop to be funny. The characters have to just have a through line. And uh, so uh, when we first started out, there were a couple saying, why isn't the audience laughing at this? They're wrong. And then after a while you go, no, the audience is right. Take that out. Um, but if it doesn't propel the story, it doesn't belong there. That's, that's, my, that's my short take on that. So, Billy, what are you working on these days? I know you've got the book that just came out. You could remind us again about that. And uh, what other plays and shows you're working on, if you can tell us anything that is? Yeah, the, uh, the book is Get in the Car, Jane, Adventures in the TV Wasteland. And it's available at uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And uh, I think they're selling autographed copies, uh, hardcover copies off my website, which is www.vanzantmilmore.com. And uh, play-wise, we uh, were touring, before, before the world shut down, we were touring in uh, our 25th play, which is the Boomer Boys musical, which is a, uh, a lighthearted look at people of a certain age and the changes that men go through. Uh, and we were touring that for two years. And when the world comes back to whatever it's coming back to, we will be back out on the road doing that again. And you can find that on my website too. And um, hope to see you there. So Billy, last question for you today. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Hmm. The best part of being part of the Star Trek universe is I'm in the company of phenomenal talented people i just uh gene roddenberry is a genius and i'm thrilled to have known him and to have been part of it uh robert wise uh you know phenomenal and mr shatner and company uh i i could it was such an honor to be part of that um 
and they're also fantastic stories. Uh, the TV show, all the TV shows, I would say, um, the movies. I just love the I love the whole universe, and what a thrill to be a part of it. All right. Well, Billy, thank you so much for joining us here today. I've really enjoyed talking with you and really you made my job so easy today. You got these stories. They're so wonderful. And you know, again, I'm urging people, if you liked hearing what Billy said today, really do check out the book. Uh, there's so many great stories we didn't even cover in there. But yeah, it's so great connecting with you and hope that one day when conventions in the world do open back up again, I could get that copy of that book autographed. You got it. Thanks so much. And that was our chat with Billy Van Zandt, who really had insight into the biz from a different lens than what we're used to seeing on this show. And of course, a lot of very good stories along with all those experiences. And once again, this episode was done in memory of the late Jane Millmore. So please consider making a donation to some of her favorite charitable organizations, including Clean Ocean Action, the American Red Cross, Holiday Express, Planned Parenthood, and the National Pancreatic Cancer Foundation. On today's episode, we spent a lot of time talking about Billy's appearance as the Randorite, but there was in fact another Randorite crewman with him, who was played by Steve Lance. Extra castings of Billy's forehead were used on Steve, who these days is known more for his work in the sound industry rather than acting. And hopefully one day we'll have a chance to speak with him about his time on Star Trek as well. During this interview, we mentioned V. Neal today, not to be confused with Steve Neal, who made the actual prosthetics and who we interviewed recently on this show as well. But V. is a three-time Academy Award-winning makeup artist who won those Oscars from her work on Beetlejuice, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Ed Wood. She was nominated for a few other Oscars and a Saturn Award, and won a Daytime Emmy for her work on Pee-wee's Playhouse, as well as a Primetime Emmy for her work on The Stand. She's got more than just a few accolades under her belt, and if I spent all day listing those, well, we'd have a whole other show on our hands here. V has some other Star Trek connections, though. In fact, her very first job as a makeup artist was with William Shatner in Kingdom of the Spiders from 1977. She also worked on the A-Team for three years with Lieutenant Barclay himself, Dwight Schultz. And if you pay attention to the scene from Star Trek The Motion Picture, where all the crew is being briefed by Captain Kirk, you might be able to spot her wearing one of those hideous tan uniforms in that group shot. And yes, add V to the list of folks who I would love to interview on this show too, and hopefully one day I will. So, hey, if anybody out there knows how to get in contact with V Neil, just give me a shout. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And if you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast when available, make sure to check out youtube.com slash nerdnews today. And don't forget you can also check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold check out all the Trek Untold merchandise we have, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash trekuntold. Any contribution you can make helps keep this ship running at optimum power. But even just listening to the show and telling your friends about it does a pretty big thing for us too. So please leave a rating and review if you're listening to this in the audio form, or give the video on YouTube a thumbs up and sub to the channel. There's no wrong way to help Trek Untold out, so whether you're just dropping a review, giving us ratings, or if you're able to offer us any support monetarily, we thank you so much for doing that. And we also thank you for, again, choosing to listen to Trek Untold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked as a guest on this show, or provide a sponsorship opportunity to Trek Untold, please email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on what you thought about this week's episode and our guest. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And until next time, fortune favors the bold.